Hey everyone, this is Stephanie from The Mission. This week we have another epic giveaway going on. We're giving away the Chili Pad Sleep Systems. So have you ever been too hot, too cold, getting into an epic battle with your spouse? I mean, I know Chad and I do that almost every night right now. I'm pulling on the covers, he's then getting hot, throws the covers on me, I throw them back on him and they end up on the floor. Anyways, it's a whole ordeal. I will spare you all the details. But with the Chili Pad Sleep System, it's been awesome because you put it, it's basically a mattress pad. You put some water in it and each side has its own remote. So Chad can make his side nice and cool. I can make my side nice and warm, turn it off when we don't want it anymore. But it's a really nice way to get deep sleep and be able to control the temperature to exactly what you want and what you feel comfortable at. It's been game changing for Chad and I. So go to mission.org slash giveaway or click the link in the show notes and enter your email for a chance to win the Chili Pad Sleep Systems. We have a few of them to give away. So chances are good. Good luck. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there, and welcome to Mission Daily. Do you ever have days where you're just blocked creatively, where nothing seems to come to you easily, and even writing a simple email feels hard? Well, you are not alone. Today's guest is Austin Kleon, New York Times bestselling author who recently wrote the book titled Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. In this episode, Chad and Austin go in depth on Austin's top 10 lessons for how creatives can avoid slumps and keep their creative juices flowing even when it feels like they've run out. Stay tuned to learn more from Austin Kleon. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mission Daily. Today's guest is Austin. Austin, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So you caught us and myself at a perfect time because admittedly, I have not been showing my work and it's uh, I've been running from this for a while. So this is uh, the perfect time. We can have uh, part intervention and uh, part discussion on creativity. Good. So as a creative who makes a living uh, writing, speaking, uh, working with companies and groups. What's most exciting for you about your day-to-day life or your your work? Um, I think what's most exciting about my work is just having the freedom to sort of follow my whims. You know, I always like to joke that I became a professional writer so I could be a professional reader. I mean, that's really what I would like to do all day is sit around and read and research and and be interested in things uh, professionally. So I think for me, it's just getting to explore and to have the time to explore because, you know, when I wrote my first two books, I was working a day job and that has its own unique constraint and that can be valuable too because it, it, it means that you sort of hustle a lot when you're trying to do what you're passionate about. But I'd say now that that writing is my job, it's just nice to have the time and, and the space to really explore, you know, what you're genuinely interested in. And that time and space, I feel like is necessary for creatives that are growing and that want to do maybe like increasingly larger or more complex products or projects. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about time management? Um, Because as creatives, this is something that we can like 
you know, react pretty viscerally against. How do you manage your time? How do you think about productivity and time management? Well, I have two boys who are six and four and um, I'm home and so is my wife. So our schedule is sort of determined by our kids. So our kids get up at seven and they go to bed at seven. So 7 p.m. 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So we sort of know what we're working with during the day. And for me, it's just a matter of sort of coordinating with my wife about when we have coverage for the kids, like when she's going to watch them, when I'm going to watch them, and then just blocking off a certain amount of time to work. I uh, usually like to work in the mornings. That's sort of when I do my best work. And so I actually get up with my boys for, for about an hour and let my wife sleep in. And then I work until about lunchtime. And then I adhere to John Waters' routine, what he says. He says, uh, I make stuff up in the morning and I sell it in the afternoon. (laughs) And so I kind of adhere to that. I try to do my creative work in the morning and then in the afternoon, um, I'll do administrative stuff. Like I'll answer email or I'll do a podcast or I'll, um, if I don't have anything I have to work on, I might write some more or I might spend the afternoon reading or I might take the kids out to the park. You know, so um, afternoons are sort of like a lot can happen depending on the day. But um, I think as far as productivity goes, I'm sort of a burst worker in that I tend to work very intensely in concentrated bursts. And then for the rest of the day, I might be pretty loose and maybe downright lazy, (laughs) actually. The thing I really believe in is just working every day and and little bits and pieces of effort. They sort of stack up over time. Yeah. And uh, I think that calling certain behaviors uh, lazy because your definition of lazy might be different from another person's, right? It's a challenge, it, probably, maybe. Um, but it's like a challenge for creatives to, I think, give ourselves permission for recovery time or laziness or relaxation. Oftentimes, I think we get so busy that we forget that uh, a lot of the time we need to process ideas and come up with new solutions, it just time spent when we're not doing anything else. So when you're being lazy or when you're not focused on something, do you work at all during those times? Do you take, are you completely unplugged? Uh, If you have a good idea, will you go back to your work or do you say, like during these times, they're just for me. I'm not doing anything work related. What's that like for you? Or is it just like spur of the moment? You're going to decide to maybe work on a project a little bit and then uh, unplug for the rest of the day. What's that like? Well, uh, a bunch of my heroes would probably have what is described as huge periods of idleness. Someone like Thoreau, who I really look up to, you know, people would wonder what he spent his days doing. And actually he spent a remarkable amount of his days just tromping around the woods outside of Concord. But of course he was scribbling in his notebook the whole time. And David Sedaris is another David, actually Henry David and David Sedaris as uh, someone who, you know, he'll work in the morning and then he'll go walk by the side of the road and pick up trash all afternoon <laughs> in his village. And, and of course he stops and scribbles and, uh, you know, but these, what looks like downtime to others is sort of like incubation time. You know, it's like time 
where you're sort of letting things stew in the background and you're sort of open and receptive to what's around you. And then when an idea comes, you know, you'll scribble it down. Like I always have my notebook with me, even at the park with my kids. I mean, I'll always pull out my notebook and jot things down. And sometimes, you know, when they're playing on the playground, I'm barely paying attention to them because, you know, I'm scribbling something. So, I mean, the way my wife puts it is that there are periods of idleness uh, in my life, but I'm sort of always working. Like it's, it's kind of a 24 seven thing. Like, I, I mean, you, you know, you, the ideas come when they come and right. You just have to be ready to capture them wherever they come. Yeah. That doesn't mean I like go right to work. You know, if I have an idea, I'll often save it for the morning. You know, I'll just write it down. So I have it and then I'll, you know, I'll attack it when I get to my desk in the morning. Yeah. And I think what you were talking about with Thoreau is really interesting. Uh, Nietzsche was famous for saying that he didn't trust any idea that he had indoors. And so he would like to get out and uh, do some mountain hiking or walks and get the best. He felt like he had the best ideas out outside. How do you think about nature and getting outside and kind of getting that direct experience with the real world? Because in our you know, technological world, we're increasingly behind screens or we're seeing things through a filter of media how do you think about just unplugging and getting into nature? Do you like camping? Do you like the outdoors? Do you feel like you recharge when you're in those environments? I am one of the world's great indoorsmen. Um, <laughs> I don't really like camping. I yeah. like walking a lot and I like gotcha. walking in different environments. I like walking in the city, but I also like walking in parks and I have been known to take an occasional hike I'm not really a camper though. I like driving out in the wilderness. Like I like, I, I just took a drive from LA to Las Vegas and I never really thought of myself as a desert person, but I, I like looking at the landscape and sort of being sort of humbled or crushed by it. I, I I'm, I'm interested in the desert. That's like a new thing for me, but I cool. would not in any ways describe myself as an outdoorsman. But I think, simply being outside is, I don't think it really matters where it is. I think that has like sort of magical healing properties, but it's really walking that I believe in firmly. I, I really believe in taking a daily walk. You know, I'm on the road right now, so I'm in a lot of different cities. So actually I found that um, my Fitbit um, actually helps me a lot because it's just sort of this quantitative you know, measurement of whether I've, you know, been out for my, for a good walk or not. So, um, yeah, but it's really walking that I believe in. It's not necessarily like getting in touch with nature or anything like that. It's it's the act of getting out and, and, and walking around. So with being on the road, are you the type of person that gets a lot of new ideas when you are on the road, when you have, when you give talks, when you do workshops or, you know, whatever you're up to, do you find yourself being inspired by that? What's that like? I'm a very extroverted person. So I get a lot of energy from being around other people. That's sort of, that's not always the case for writers. I would say probably, you know, it's, they say that probably 30 to 30% of people are introverted. um, But I would say it's way higher for writers. Writers have to spend a remarkable amount of time alone So I happen to be an extroverted writer. So being on the road for me is really valuable because I get to 
you know, really interact with people face to face and hear what their problems are and what they're interested in and what they're interested in from me and how my work is resonating with them and, and how they're responding to it. And that sort of gives me good ideas for what should come next or what's down the pipe. You know, I, I rarely start a new, my books come kind of, they take a while to kind of germinate and mm. come to fruition. But then when we do them, they happen very quickly and they're published very quickly. So keep going. For example, you know, I gave the talk it's based on in I think February of 2018 and it just came out in April of 2019. So that's very, very quick by publishing standards. So right. one of the things I like to do is I like to wait until the last book is out and see how people respond to it before I like really jump into the next one. I think that works just because of the particular type of books that I do. You know, I don't think that would work for a novelist, <laughs> you well, know, a novelist, should, you know, they have to work so long on, on books and, you know, every no novelist I know usually has the next book started or two or three of them started before, you know, the, the new one is published. Sure. And uh, you mentioned keep going there. The uh, The subtitle of the book is uh, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. And uh, I was hoping we could go through those 10 ways and you could kind of share maybe where they came from or if there's a story behind them or really any thoughts you have on them. Because I think these are fascinating and they're great ways to stay motivated, basically, for anyone out there that's uh, that feels like they're struggling or if anybody's out there looking for more creative ideas, uh, I feel like these are 10 ways that anybody can apply. So if you're ready, let's jump into them. Sure. The first one is every day is Groundhog Day. So now that we've conjured up the wonderful Bill Murray in our minds, um, let's tackle the first one. I'm always interested in finding, you know, parables for for the book. Some I needed some way in with this book. I needed some sort of like way in to get people to sort of understand the kind of dailiness I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about with, with creative work and Groundhog Day just sort of, it seemed like the right thing to start the book with. I mean, it's, it's 25 years old now. So it's like, has like a quarter century of history now. And it's sort of one of those movies that gets better with time. And so it's, I think people will watch it 25 years from now as much as they do now. You know, I sort of wanted to pick something that I thought illustrated the, the point of the chapter, which is really that, you know, it's best for a creative person to approach things on a day-to-day -day basis, to have some sort of daily practice, to not worry too much about what happened yesterday or what happened tomorrow or what's going to happen tomorrow, but to really focus on the day and the time and energy and space they have like right now in the day. And I thought that Groundhog Day was a perfect example of that because, you know, Bill Murray's character in that movie, Phil Connors, he discovers that each day is kind of a gift that he, instead of it being a burden that he sort of has this repetitive life in which things are sort of out of his control, ultimately, he realizes that he's really in control of how he fills his days. 
And I think that's true of a lot of us. We really don't have a lot of control over our wider world or what context we find ourselves in. We really don't have that much control over our careers or what kind of luck we have. All we really have control over is how we spend our days. And so I just felt like Groundhog Day was like the great parable for that. I completely agree. I think it's uh, a challenge to approach each day with that mindset of like, today's an opportunity and I can do whatever I want with it. I can react to the things that come up however I, I want to. So you have some kind of like sub points here to take it one day at a time, establish a daily routine, make lists and finish each day and be done with it. I think that's so great because we have to like finish the day's work and you can't keep carrying it with you, whether there are successes or whether there are failures that happen, you can't take them with you. You can try, but you're just going to be carrying a lot of baggage. So let's transition to the second one here. Uh, you recommend that people build a bliss station. I think this is, this is really cool. So how do we go about building a bliss station? Well, a bliss station is something that the mythologist Joseph Campbell said that everyone needed to have. Um, and what he said was, you need either a sacred time or a sacred place every day where you're sort of disconnected from the world so that you could connect with yourself. So it's sort of like the opposite of being on social media <laughs> or right. like on the internet. You know, you need, that was his big point is that you need disconnection time so that you can connect with what's within. Right. Um, and I, you know, usually this is what the artist studio is. It's, it's a space in which they can sort of enter their own world and go within by, you know, working. But again, I'm on the road right now and, and it's hard to find these spaces when you're traveling. So I found that airplane mode and earplugs will turn lots of situations uh, into bliss stations. Silence and solitude is sort of like the great requirement for a bliss station. Silence, you can do, you know, noise canceling, basically, is, is what that's about. But as far as solitude, you can sort of be alone in lots of situations, even if there are people around you. Like, you know, uh, being on a bus, you can be in solitude, in a sense, if you're kind of withdrawn. You know, you can, I think Cal Newport in his books talks about his definition of solitude is like not having inputs from mm -hmm. others. And so I find that kind of interesting, but I think, you know, really just making your smartphone dumb again and popping in some sort of noise canceling device, you know, earplugs or, or noise canceling headphones. I think you can turn pretty much any situation uh, into a potential bliss station. Yeah. I love that. Especially for people that are traveling. It's like, it's a practice that it's, you got, you got to do it if you're going to stay sane while you travel. The third one here is forget the noun do the verb. So this is such a great reminder in an age where there's so much media, there are so many potential inputs out there. It's easy to get caught up on nouns and forget that, you know, like Buckminster uh, Fuller said, like, I'm a verb kind of thing. So how do we, how do we uh, become a verb? You know, I think that the, the way I put it is like, you know, a lot of people who want to be writers, but there aren't that many people who want to sit down and write, you know? So it's, it's sort of like if you want the job title, you have to do the work. I think one way as a creative person to sort of discover what that raw verb is about is to sort of like take 
all the nouns out of your mind is to sort of focus on process and, and not product so much. So, you know, my son Jules is a perfect example. Like he's four and when he sits down to draw, he doesn't care about getting drawings as in nouns, as in finished objects. All he really cares about is drawing. So like he'll just sit down and he has no filter, no fear, nothing. He'll just fill a piece of paper, look at it, and then throw it on the ground. And He's like done with it and he'll start another drawing. And so he's all about the verb drawing, not the noun drawing. And so if you can sort of figure that out every once in a while for your work. Like what is the verb of your work? Like what are the verbs? And if you focus on those, if you focus on the process rather than the product, you know, that'll take you somewhere further and far more interesting. Yeah. And I think you say in the book that your real work is play. And if you are playful when you're creating I just think that that's going to be transmitted in the product. Like you're going to have a much better chance of connecting with people in a fun way if you're having fun when you're creating something. Um, there's a saying that like no emotion in the writer, no emotion in the reader. Uh, I think it holds true here. So any other ideas that you have maybe on how we can uh, become more playful in our work? Any strategies you use to keep uh, playfulness? I think that... I sort of, I think materials are really important. I think it's really important to treat your materials like new toys almost, or like children would approach blocks or a new paint set or something. I think exploring your materials is really where a lot of really good creative ideas come from. And so I try often to, um, and I think that's where analog tools can really be valuable or, or like a new, I suppose like a new app or a new software product is sort of like a new toy. Um, but the analog tools, that's such an interesting point because I I feel like that tactile feedback is, is so important to like incorporate your whole body and movement into your practice. And if you're doing everything digitally, uh, you're not going to get that sense of like using your hands and using your, your tools kind of. I think so. I mean, I think you can be playful with computers, but it just takes a certain kind of, it just, it all depends. There is something though, I think about the relief of using analog tools. When you use primarily digital tools, there's something about analog work that kind of like frees you up again. Um, There are a lot of musicians who, when they're in the studio, like they'll pick up an instrument they don't really know how to play and they'll start fiddling around with it as if it was a new toy, you know, and then they'll get all kinds of new ideas. And so I think like new toys, playing with materials like a kid would with blocks, you know, those sort of things I think can sort of free you up. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And the next one here is make gifts. So not, not gifts, but gifts. So you want to, you say, protect your valuables, ignore the numbers, and where there is no gift, there is no art. So how do you try or how do you think about turning your creative work into a gift for others? Well, a lot of my thinking on this has come directly from a guy named Lewis Hyde who wrote a book called The Gift. And Hyde's theory is that art exists in both the gift economy and it also exists in the market economy. And that you can make art that exists just in the gift economy and not in the market economy, but you can't make art art can't exist in just the market economy. So 
true art needs to have a sort of gift element to it um, in order to be considered art. And, and Hyde writes a lot about how the artist's gifts are awoken by the gifts of others. So, so you're often brought to your work because you're like a huge fan or you experience the work of like another artist or a creative person and it makes you want to do your own work and, and find your own gifts. But, you know, this tricky thing can happen when you turn your art into a profession or your creative work into a profession is that you can start to lose that gift is that, you know, the, the pressures of the marketplace can squeeze the work in a way that, that diminishes it. And so I think one of the easy ways to kind of recapture your passion, if you've lost it for your work, is to simply pull it out of the marketplace every once in a while. And I think the easiest thing to do is to simply make gifts, make something specific for someone in your life and and you don't necessarily even have to give it to them. You just have to make it's 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 like a mind game. It's like thinking of your work as you're going to gift it to someone specific. And then right. I think a, a great example of that is like how many classic children's books started out as bedtime stories for actual kids. Such a good example. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh, um, Alice in Wonderland, The Hobbit, you know, all of these stories were originally for actual children. And so um, I think that we all can sort of, no matter what you do, I think if you've lost your passion, I think, I think making gifts for someone specific, it, it can be a really helpful thing. Yeah, especially when you face the realities of the market and the market is always demanding perfection. It's always demanding something that is better and faster and cheaper. And that can be stifling. You know, perfectionism is pretty stifling for, for creatives. So I feel like getting the balance right there is, uh, is crucial. So the next one here, the, the fifth way is uh, a bit of a formula. So the ordinary plus extra attention equals the extraordinary. What do you mean by that? Well, attention is really the crucial tool of the artist. But what the artist does is the, the artist pays attention to certain things and then figures out a way for us to pay attention to those things too. So really what the artist does, and I think a terrific example of this, which I use in the book, is, is Karita Kent, who... She was a nun who lived in Los Angeles and she made screen prints where she would take pictures of advertising and packaging and she would pull out the religious um, messages sort of hidden in this work. So she would take the Safeway sign and break it into Safeway and add her own quotes and make it a, a piece about passage and safety and, and that kind of thing. And so what Carita said is that she didn't really feel like art was a very good term for what she did. She liked the term the uncommon. So she, what she would do is she would take common things and make them uncommon in the act of making her prints. And I think this is what like really, really great art does is it takes something that's in front of everyone and it looks at it in a way that changes the way everyone looks at it afterwards. So you know, when David Hockney, when you go to a David Hockney show, for example, you know, you come out of it and you see like David Hockney at the end. What the artist is really giving you is a way of experiencing the world. They're transmitting that to you. And that's true of like great music too, is when you hear it, you can't help but like 
listen to your world in a different way. Attention, I think, is the engine that art really runs on. And it's the very thing that the world sort of wants to steal from you. You know, I mean, the attention is exactly what many of the media corporations, they make their money off of, you know, getting you to click on stuff, taking your attention from one thing to another. I mean, that that's how these companies profit. So you have to, like a, a big goal of the artist or creative person is to, oh, part of the, their work is to protect their attention. Yeah. And I feel like that's key to interpersonal relationships and family relationships as well as like, if your attention is elsewhere, if you're if you've ceded your attention to corporations uh, seven or eight times throughout the day, and then you try to, you know, go play with your son, it's not going to be as effective or fun as if you hadn't, if you'd had, you know, kept that attention. So really, really good reminder. So six, this is really exciting because for any artist or any creative, you're going to have to face your demons at some point. And so the sixth point is slay the art monsters. And you say here that art is for life and not the other way around. What do you mean here? And uh, what type of monsters have you faced as well? I would, I would love to dive into that as well if you're in- interested. Well, art monster is a term that Jenny Offal uses in her novel, uh, Department of Speculation. And, you know, my definition of an art monster is just someone whose life suffers or the lives around them suffer in the making of the art basically, and that they become sort of monstrous humans through the making of their art. And I think that, you know, our culture is having a reckoning right now with artists who in their personal lives, they can be pretty monstrous, but yet they've produced work that's brought joy and happiness and usefulness to people all over the world. So like Michael Jackson is a perfect example of an art monster. Right. Um, someone who's, you know, creates these incredible works and then the horror of who he was in his personal life is, is hard to deal with. And for a creative person, you know, part of how you process that knowledge of the people you look up to or the people you listen to or the people you look at, like, of how they were in their personal life. Like part of how you deal with that is your work. And I think what is important is to realize that monstrous behavior is not a prerequisite for making art. You know, we've glorified a lot of those uh, bad behaviors in the past. Um, Like, you know, the, the drunken writer and the womanizing painter and, you know, stuff like that. We, we, we sort of in this culture have glorified that to the point where you, we think that's a prerequisite for making great work. And I think the culture at large is having a, a reckoning with that notion. And I think that it's really, I, my, basically my, my personal opinion is that, you know, the world doesn't necessarily need more artists. It needs more decent human beings. Definitely that's agree. Sort of where I fall on that. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, too, for anyone out there that has experienced uh, emotional pain, which is, you know, everyone, um, it's, it just happens. It's a human thing. There's always a tendency to get out of pain. And I think so many artists are looking for a way to stop the pain uh, and to heal. And there are so many invitations along the way when you're making your work to 
there's there's just a hunger for others to understand your pain, right? Or to commiserate with you. And there are all these small invitations towards potentially not all at once, but maybe paths that end up in uh, a monstrous place, basically. So what would you say to a lot of artists who are fighting that battle, who see the type or maybe are terrified of the person that they might become uh, along the way? What would you say to a lot of people that want to make art, but not become a monster? Well, I would say, you know, surround yourself with good role models. I mean, for every, for every one of your heroes who kind of sort of became a monster or whatever, there's, there's also an example of like a decent person who also made great art. You know, there's just, I think role models are really important. I also think it's really important to get therapy. Like if you need, Definitely. Art can help, but it's part of a cure. It's not the whole cure. And I think that like, you know, if you're really suffering, you need to get help. You need, you know, Adam Phillips, the psychologist talks a lot about how a lot of people are drawn towards creative work because that seems like a place that people with problems, you know, gravitate towards. And sure. In some cases, making art can exacerbate your problems. You know, so you just have to be, just because you're an artist doesn't mean, uh, you know, you've heard tons of artists say, well, I don't go to therapy because I need it for the work or, you know, whatever that is. So I would just say, you know, artists, artists are not special people. They're not, you need all the things that so-called regular human beings need. Yeah. You know, just because you're a creative person doesn't mean that you get a pass or that you're, you know, you're somehow special. Yeah, I think, too, that the uh, when corporate media publishes the latest news on like a successful novel or movie or series or whatever the case is, uh, you're never going to read about the uh, the therapy or the conversations or the self-work that went into that. It's pretty rare that that is a part of the uh, discussion. Um, it's corporate media tends to focus on the end result of successful adventures, not the uh, the day in and day out groundhog like fixing of uh, oneself so i i do think though that you know when you're people look for stories and stories are about conflict they're about someone who has a problem and then they go through something and they come out the other end with a win lose or draw and uh, you know i think people are always looking for those stories where oh you know so and so was a you know had all these problems and then came up with this great thing you know there was the triumph over but you're right there's the big dramatic thing versus the you know sort of quotidian day-to-day work of art so so the seventh one here so important uh i think fundamentalism is a major major challenge as well as habit and routines uh these can become traps that we don't escape so the seventh point you are allowed to change your mind so to change your mind is, uh, I think, is the real freedom that many of us don't always uh, grab. So what did you mean by this? Well, I think to change is to be alive. And I think that in this culture, you know, we're not very supportive of people who want to change their minds. I mean, you're supposed to pick a side or you're supposed to pick your ideas and then stick with them. And I think for artists in particular, you know, uh, I think creative people and artists are pushed to become personal brands. You know, you want to become a brand. So everyone, 
knows you and what you're about and like um like you're some sort of like you're coca-cola or something and the problem with that is that that requires a tremendous amount of certainty about what your brand guidelines are and like who you are and what you're thinking but the majority of really great creative work doesn't happen that way i think art and creative work runs on uncertainty it's when you don't know for sure what you believe or or what the truth is or what you're dealing with that's the exploratory that's where art starts from is from that kind of blank that ambivalence about life there's a great uh, i just have to jump in here there's a great great uh terrence mckenna quote where he says that art can only be created in the moment when you realize you're a mystery suspended between two eternities and uh, yeah so sorry go ahead but i completely agree with what you're saying no, I mean, Flannery O'Connor has a book uh, about, it's called Mystery and Manners. And mystery is a big, when you dive into a project, you are diving into the unknown. You do not know, you have an idea of what you'd like to come up with at the end, but you really don't know how it's going to turn out. But, but in a wider sense, you know, to allow yourself to be changed, to surround yourself with ideas that are uncomfortable, this requires certain spaces that are sort of safe zones. And I think that those zones are, it requires you to sort of go off brand basically. And I think that the place to go off brand is offline. I don't think that Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or any of these places are really decent places to think. I think they're okay places to be exposed to ideas. I don't think they're great places to actually do any kind of, you know, to go off and and have any kind of, to grapple with ideas. I don't think they're very safe places to do that. And so you need to find places in your offline life that you can do that kind of work. And sometimes that's like a journal, that's like a paper journal, or sometimes that's a library, uh, just reading all day. Or sometimes that is simply finding what my friend Alan Jacobs calls like-hearted versus like-minded people. So that's finding people who don't necessarily share all your same beliefs and tastes or whatever, but they're sort of interested in you and they care about you and they care about what you care about in a general sense. These are the kinds of people that it's, that it's really helpful to have conversations with and to be around because as we all know, you know, when you hang out with people that only had the same ideas all the time, that that's intellectually stifling. Yeah. And those people that have the same ideas, they, in a sense, have a brand guidelines for how you should behave, how you should act in their head. Whereas the like-hearted, the like-hearted people, there's a much better chance that if you decide to try something new, they're going to support it. So definitely found that out in my own life as well. Um, okay. Eighth point here, uh, when in doubt, tidy up. So creatives can tend to be messy. That's the, uh, de facto state for many of us. Why do you recommend tidying up and, uh, What's an example of how you tidy up your, your creative space? I'm an advocate for tidying as a mode of productive procrastination. So tidying's really for when you're kind of burnt out or bottomed out or it's the end of the day and you really don't have much juice left. Tidying, I think, is an activity that can sort of It can be a calming thing, but it can also be a way to get new ideas. So when I tidy my studio, it's sort of like one of two things will happen. Like one, I'll get an idea for the project I'm working on. 
because we all know when we're doing the dishes or we're sweeping the floor, you know, taking a shower, like that's when you get your ideas, when your hands are busy and you're sort of relaxed and things can kind of come. And then the other thing that happens is that I'll find a scrap in the mess of my studio that I can use for the project, like that sparks some sort of idea. So I think tidy is tidying is, is most valuable as a form of exploring. It's not yeah. actually about getting to the perfect tidy studio, like where everything's in its right place or whatever. It's, it's more about, for me, it's more about exploring and it's more about moving things around and, and letting your mind wander. Okay, this, the ninth point here is fantastic. Demons hate fresh air. So to exercise is to exorcise. So exercise is something that's so, so crucial to feeling better. Anytime I feel bad, I guarantee that I'll feel better after a run. So how do you think about exercise? Yeah, Demons Hate Fresh Air is something that the film director Ingmar Bergman said to his daughter. He said, you should get up in the morning and take a walk because first thing, because it lets out all the demons. And I think that, you know, exercise, we all sort of know this, that like exercise makes us feel better, it releases our inner demons. And there's a long, long history of creative thinkers taking walks and, and or swimming or doing some sort of physical activity that, that sort of gets them their ideas. But I think there's another way that walking, com- there's another kind of demon that that walking, I think, battles, and that is the outer demons. Those are the people who are sort of trying to control us through fear and misinformation that sort of want to control our vision of the world so that they can sell us things. And and so, I, so, for example, like when you're on Twitter, I mean, Twitter makes money based on how chaotic the world is, basically. So, you know, you're on Twitter and you're scrolling and the whole place seems like a garbage fire. You know, but then you get out of your studio, you put your phone down, you take a walk and you walk outside and it's like, yeah, there are some problems. Of course, you see things out in the environment that bothers you and troubles you, but there's also an enormous amount of beauty. There's clouds and trees and birds and there's people on the sidewalk. There's all your neighbors, you know, I think walking, getting out in the world, it sort of makes life worth living. You know, Definitely. because you can experience it with your own five senses, basically. So I think that's, I think getting out in your daily environment and taking a walk is a way to kind of combat those, both the inner demons and the outer ones. Definitely. I think there are a lot of folks whose uh, incentives are to make us feel that everything's going wrong in the world. And the second you get out into a local environment, you often find that, uh, hey, things are, things are awesome. I have great neighbors. I have uh, great surroundings. You also focus on local problems, you know, I mean, you that are actually solvable. (laughs) Yeah, actual solvable local problems, you know, it puts you in touch with, with what's actually happening around you that you could actually potentially solve. Yes. Yeah, I love that. You know, worrying about like geopolitics, not as useful as worrying about what's the next vote in your city council. Like you could potentially sway that vote uh, that's happening in your city council. So the 10th point here, plant your garden. Uh, You say that creativity has seasons and to remember that this too shall pass. This is sort of, for me, this is really the 
if there's one point in the book that I think is most important, it's that creativity has seasons, that we all go through cycles and that progress is sort of, there's this myth of progress with creative people that we're just going to like follow the straight shot and we're just going to keep getting better and better and better. But I, I actually think that it's creative work looks more like a spiral or a loop in which you're constantly sort of going through all of these phases of, you know, generating ideas to working on them really hard to coming up with a finished product to releasing it out in the world, then getting more ideas again, you know, it's really like a loop. It's almost like a, um, it's like a learning loop. And it's interesting to me how many like filmmakers, for example, they talk about how like every movie they sort of have to learn again. It's back to the Groundhog Day thing, you know, where writers will talk about how every book they almost have to learn how to write again because every project's different. And I think if you can sort of break out of that sort of linear, that notion of linear time and, and forward progress, if you can think of yourself more in terms of seasons and cycles, it sort of frees you up because you know that there are times in your life that you sort of need to be dormant for a bit and you need to store up and shore up, you know, and then there are other times where, you know, you're flowering and you're blossoming and you need to produce, you know, and so paying attention to your rhythms and cycles, um, I think can really set you free from this notion that you're just going to go, go, go forward and onwards forever, you know, yeah. um, and I think it helps you kind of stay in it for the long haul. I think it actually does help you progress further to think in terms of those cycles. Cause so, yeah, definitely agree. So Austin, thank you for being generous with your time. If there is a final thought call to action or uh, maybe even a thought experiment that you would leave our listeners with, what would that be? Oh gosh. Um, I, you know, one thing I felt on the road this time and I'm about halfway through my book tour is I detect a lot of anxiety, just, just a general anxiety. I think people feel like they're just not doing enough. And I think a lot of that ex anxiety comes from external pressures. I think that, you know, I think that people really need to cut themselves some slack. And I think that, you know, life is not just about productivity. It's not just about constantly making things and, churning stuff out like it's also about enjoying your life living your life and i would encourage everyone to figure out where that anxiety is coming from like what's pushing you to be so anxious about your work and kind of examine that anxiety and to figure out how you can cut yourself a break and how you can make your life more enjoyable because i, I it's just it's not just about life is not just about working all the time you know, that's, that's my, that's my main thing I'm, I'm detecting. And I think a lot of those, you know, signals come from outside. I mean, we're really being sold a vision of the world in which, you know, if you're not doing, if you're not productive 24 seven a day, like what are you even doing on the planet? You know? And I think that's a really, I think that's, that's not how human beings are supposed to live. And uh, so cut yourself a break and finish the day and be done with it and keep going. Wise words. Austin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. 
We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.